Welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Some stairs and I thought, wow, he's really committed. That's awesome. So uh, I know they're not here, but isn't it just great to have a team like that with our kids? Fantastic. Something else happened this week on Wednesday night uh, related to kids. We had a seminar that we, the church, put on for the community. Some of you were there, I know, and it was a seminar talking about being a parent. And the first part was talking about being the parent of a primary school kid, and then we had a little break, and then we talked about being the parent of a high schooler. And we flew in a guy called Brett Ryan, who's the CEO of Focus on the Family, and he is a really engaging speaker, uh, entertaining, uh, really funny, but he also had a whole lot of great knowledge. And I remember when I was a younger parent than I am now, going along to one of these sort of seminars, and um, we were in a phase of life where the kids were really young, and, uh, and we were developing, let's say, different styles of parenting. My beautiful wife was uh, home with the kids all day, and she was focused on getting a bit of discipline into the house. And then I would come home, and my style of parenting was the cuddling, comforting style of parenting. And, uh, and I couldn't figure out why this wasn't working. And, and it seemed that there's some tension and, and it just seemed to not work. And over a period of time, things got worse and, and, and things just weren't that good. So we decided to go to one of these seminars. And I can't remember if it was a seminar or a book. But there was this piece of knowledge that struck me. And it was this. It was that being a unified team as parents was more important than a lot of other stuff. And I remember this thought wow, I'm part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. The way I'm doing this is wrong. Now, I kind of knew that unity was important in parenting, but there was this moment where that piece of knowledge hit me and it changed the way I thought. I call it a life-changing piece of knowledge in one of these seminars that went from sort of some vague theory into something that was really real and it changed the way that we parented, me particularly a life-changing piece of knowledge. And that is what we're going to look at this morning. Paul is going to unpack for us a bunch of life-changing knowledge. So let's pray as we do that. Father, I want to pray for this morning's life-changing knowledge. I want to pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to settle upon us. Would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see what you've got for us this morning? Father, we love you. We thank you for this special time of hearing your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series on Ephesians. We started last week and we we unpacked a bit of background. So let me just quickly recap just in case you weren't there. We talked about uh, this letter to the Ephesians and who was it written to. And we discovered that it's actually written to a number of churches, not just one. And that was helpful because we can take it as a letter to the church, to us as believers. Um, We talked about the letter being written to the area of Ephesus. And we looked at the, the different religions that were there, this cosmopolitan city, and said, yeah, it's a little bit like us. And we looked at how the letter is structured. That was in two parts. The first part being a bunch of theory. And when I say a bunch of theory, it's amazing theological theory and a call to unity. That's chapters 1 to 3, and then chapters 4 to 6 is, what's the practical outworking of that? What are we called to do in response to it? 
And we looked at the why. The why Paul wrote it. He wrote it to people in this area of Ephesus so that they might know more about their God. So this morning we're going to move into the next section. We unpacked chapter 1, verses 3 to 14 last time, and we summarised it this way. We said that we have God's love in Christ in accordance with his will, pleasure and plan. And now we move through, and, and this letter, remember, wasn't broken up into verses like we have now. It was one continuous whole. So we're sort of moving through from that theme. But what I'm going to propose this morning is that the section that Rosemary read for us is Paul giving us a lot of knowledge. He's saying, here are some of the basic pieces of knowledge. And they might be basic in the sense that they're foundational, but they're absolutely amazing. And he prays that we grasp them. So let's look at the very first one. I'm gonna, I think I've got about six or seven of these pieces as we go through. And the first one is all-encompassing and it's the most important. In verse 17, Paul is praying this for these people. He said... He says that he's praying that we, the church, might know him, that's God, better. The first bit of knowledge he's saying is, I pray that you would know God better. Jesus actually prayed something similar in John chapter 17, verse 3, for his disciples. The night he was arrested, he said, this is eternal life, that they, the disciples, may know you, God. I, uh, in a previous job, I had a, we used to call it a country chair. This was the most senior person in my company in that country. And I remember, you know, that was somebody that was fairly sort of in the stratosphere, not somebody you interacted with all the time. And I remember this one crisis that we had. And the crisis meant that I actually sat in a taxi with this man for about half an hour on the way to the Premier's office. Now, as a younger employee, this was a pretty significant moment. I hadn't met the Premier before. I hadn't been in the presence of many Premiers. I was pretty nervous. But I sat next to this guy in the taxi who had decades of experience in our industry. And he was calm. He talked us through the strategy. And he started asking about my family and my personal life. And I thought afterwards, wow, I got to know him better. In what was a bit of a crisis for me, I was stressed about how I was going to perform. We're going to meet this really sort of important person in that business world, the Premier of the state. And yet I learned that this guy was calm. He knew what he was doing. And not only that, but in that moment, he was interested in me. I got to know him better in that taxi ride. And I think that's what Paul is saying to us. He's saying, I want you to get to know God better because when you do, you're going to understand that these promises he will come through on. You're going to understand more about how much he loves you. And why is that important? Why is it important that we would know God better? Well, if you were here a few weeks ago, Ben O'Reilly talked to us about the marshmallow test to sort of whet your appetite. I've got some marshmallows up there. The marshmallow test is this thing. It's been done for many years. I think it was first done in the 60s or the 70s. And the idea was this in brief, that you have a child and you put in front of the child a plate with a marshmallow on it. You say, you can eat the marshmallow. But if you're prepared to wait for a short period of time, five minutes, ten minutes, I can't remember what it was, you'll get two marshmallows. 
And Ben showed this really cool video of all these kids sitting there straining for a few minutes and they'll touch it and they'll pick it up and they'll lick it and they'll put it back. And, you know, there's all this sort of effort and some of them ate it and some of them didn't. But one of the interesting things that that test has been used to show over time is a really strong correlation between how much the kids trusted the person who told them to wait. So what they actually did in the precursor to that was they'd have the, the adult who came in giving that information talking to the kid. And some of the adults were briefed to sort of be a bit disingenuous and, you know, clearly you're not very trustworthy. And some of them were briefed to be absolutely trustworthy. And there was a really strong correlation between the kids who waited and the amount of trust that they had for the adult and the kids who didn't trust what was being said. And I think that's really helpful for us when we think about why is Paul calling for us to get to know God better? Because he knows that when we know him better, we'll learn to trust him better and we will hang on to his promises more. So that's the first bit of knowledge, is Paul is praying that we would get to know God better. The second is he's praying for hope. He's praying that we would know hope to which we are called, hope in life. Hope of forgiveness and redemption. The hope that comes with purpose that God gives us. As I was thinking about this hope, something came to me. It's a story out of the Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? You might have read the book. You might have seen the movies. And there's a movie called Two Towers. And in the movie of Two Towers, there is this great battle called the Battle for Helm's Deep. And uh, the people, kind of the good guys, are in this fortress called Helm's Deep. And this fortress is supposed to be impregnable. But the fortress is kind of backed into a, into a cavernous cliff. There is no way out. And there's this scene in the movie where they've been there for four days and the enemy is starting to break down the walls. And there's this scene of the women and children crying because they know bad things are imminent. And then there's the scene of the king who is apathetic. He knows they are doomed. He's got no energy to do anything. It's the middle of the night. They've been there for four days. And he just puts up his hands and says, why bother? We're dead. And at that moment, of course, it's a movie from Hollywood, the hero, Aragorn, steps in. And Aragorn remembers the words from Gandalf. And Gandalf was this great wizard and Gandalf had gone off to get some help. And Gandalf's words were these, at my coming at first, I can't do his voice, uh, I don't have that sort of good gravelly voice, at my coming at the first light on the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. And so here we are in the middle of the night with absolute doom impending, certain death, And Aragorn steps up and says, no, there is hope. There is hope in this situation. And he leads this charge out into the enemy that would otherwise be absolutely suicidal except for the hope. And the hope was not let down because, of course, at first light, there comes Gandalf with all the horsemen. They come down and they win the battle and it's happily ever after. But it's that hope in the midst of doom that came to me as, wow, that's a really extreme example. But I don't know about you, if you've been through a hard time, it's in those times that this knowledge of hope 
can seem most amazing. We actually have hope all the time, of course, in God. But if you're going through a hard time, that hope can be even stronger, that sense of it. Paul's praying that we might have knowledge of this hope. What's the third thing? Let's look into verse 18. And I think I've got some summaries. There we go. I'm I'm going to try and summarise some of these as we go so they stick in your mind. In verse 18, Paul prays that we will know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. It's hope of an inheritance. Now, until I started studying this passage this week, I always thought this inheritance was my inheritance, your inheritance. I thought, yes, in God we've got this great inheritance. When we die, we've got good stuff coming. But actually, reading it more closely and looking at what many of the scholars say, it's talking about hope in God's inheritance. And it tells us that God's inheritance is his holy people. So I want you to do something quickly for me. Look to your left at the person on your left. Look to the right, your person on your right. Look just in front of you. Did you know you are looking at God's glorious inheritance? Isn't that amazing and powerful? We, you and I, we are what God considers his glorious inheritance, his people. Now that knowledge has all sorts of implications for how we think about loving one another, for how we think about unity in the body of believers. And this is what Paul's praying. Understand, we are God's glorious inheritance The next thing Paul talks about in verse 19 to 21, the next bit of knowledge that he's giving us is that we might know God's power. Now, I uh, I find it relatively easy to conceptualise at a theoretical level that Jesus rose from the dead. It makes sense to me. And I know that that's by God's power. But then when it comes to understanding that that power is available to me through the Holy Spirit, I find that harder. I don't know about you. But that that jumps a little harder. But that is what Paul's saying. In this passage, he's saying that amazing power that allowed God, that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, it's available to you and available to me through the Holy Spirit. There's a great example of this, of course, in the book of Acts. The disciples, these are guys who got to spend three years with God. Three years with God, walking the earth with Jesus. And at the end of it, Despite all of that, when persecution came, when Jesus was arrested and ultimately killed, they disappeared. In the start of Acts, we see them hiding in an upper room. They're still kind of together, but you get this impression that they're, you know, they're scared. They've got the curtains all drawn there. They're just in together. But then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes. And if you know about the story in Acts... At the moment, the Holy Spirit comes and from then on, there is this radical change in these people. This amazing change. Suddenly, from being concerned and hiding, they're out preaching in the streets. They are threatened by authorities with jail and beatings. They go through those things and yet still joyously, they're out preaching. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit that's available to them. And Paul says, I want you to know that. Church, I want you to know that power is available to you too. We move into chapter 2. 
We move into chapter 2, and again, this is a seamless piece of writing. The, the chapters and verses were added later, so Paul's continuing on. And here, he's giving us a, a before and after. So the first part of chapter 2 here that we're looking at, he's giving us a before and after. He uses a contrast to help us understand the bits of knowledge that he's trying to impart. I've seen this great picture. Unfortunately, I didn't get it into the slides, but I've seen this great picture of a before and after of the city of Shanghai. And, and the before picture is taken in, I don't know, in the 90s, and the after picture is taken three or four years ago. And in the before picture, you see, and they're taken from exactly the same spot. don't know how they did it, but it's exactly the same spot. And you see a river bend, and in the before picture, you see this nice green sort of urban sprawl. There's trees and houses, and, and it's clearly a city, but it's a bit of an urban sprawl. And in the after picture, all you can see for miles and miles and miles is massive high-rises, city apartments, city buildings, office buildings, neon signs. This before and after contrast is amazing. Well, let me use another example, a little closer to home. Anybody watch The Biggest Loser? It's a show that contrasts the before and after, doesn't it? The before, or should I say the before and the after. We, that, that's how people use, uh, communicate with us sometimes, is to show the difference. And uh, this wasn't in here, but I want to add this in. Did you hear Georgia talk about the before and after? And that's actually what Paul's talking about. Georgia told us about on camp a young man before and after. And she said it was a night and day transition in transformation in who he was. This is what Paul is saying to us here. He talks in the first few verses in chapter 2 that we were spiritually dead before we knew Christ. He says we were disobedient, we were deserving of wrath. We were in a difficult place. We may not have realised it, it may have felt like life was going on, but actually spiritually we were dead. And then Paul goes on, and I really like the English Standard Version here, because in verse 4 in the English Standard Version, version, Paul uses two words. He goes on to say, but God. But God. You see, he's just talked about being dead in sin. But God made us alive in Christ. That's what he goes on in the next few verses to say. He talks about we were disobedient, but God allows us to love one another. He talks about us deserving wrath, but God gives grace and mercy. So these verses here in chapter 2 start to contrast for us this amazing knowledge. Paul wants us to know what we were before, what we are apart from Jesus Christ, and then what we are transformed into when Jesus is in our lives. The last piece of knowledge that I want to share is in verse 10, the last verse we're looking at. And this one talks about a purpose for us. Paul is praying that we would have a purpose. You see, he says, he talks about workmanship, the idea that we are God's image bearers. Image bearers in who we are and what we do. It's interesting, again, just a reference to the kids. I know that uh, Dave and George have been running a program where the theme has been created to be creative. This idea that God, who's so creative, created us to be creative. We are in his image. And this is what Paul is praying for us. I, again, I, I like the ESV translation. 
says this, and, and the end bit's what I'm interested in here. It says, For we are his workmanship, verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we should work, walk in them. Now, I really like that because it, it gives me this sense that um, God doesn't have this single thing that he wants me to achieve. He may. But actually, God has designed me to be walking through life and serving him. And as I walk through life, I can contribute. He calls me into his big plan. So we are in his image and he calls us into a purpose as we walk through life. So let's look at a quick summary. Let's look at a quick summary of what we've got. I think I've got these up on the slide there. There we go. Paul is praying here for these churches in and around Ephesus. And I think for us too, that we might know God. That we might know the hope to which we've been called that we might understand that we're part of God's inheritance. He's praying that we might know the power, the power that we have for life transformation. The difference between life before we knew Christ and life now that we're in Christ and the fact that we've got a purpose. Does that excite you? I hope it does. Because I think that's actually what we as humans are looking for. Hope, purpose, knowledge that someone loves us deeply. But how does Paul pray that people get this knowledge? This knowledge could be a little bit like that knowledge I talked about right at the start in my story where there was sort of this vague theoretical thought about some parenting knowledge, but it wasn't in my heart yet. How does Paul ask that that would come about? Well, there are two ways. Let's look at it carefully back in verses 15 to 18. What we see Paul doing here is praying. He says he's not stopped giving thanks. He's remembering them in his prayers and he keeps asking for them. There's this sense of continual prayer. And we talked about this last week, but we don't know that Paul really knew these people. This was sort of like a a congregation where he'd met some people, but not necessarily many of the people that he was talking about. And he's praying for them consistently. How much more should we be praying for each other in our family? So that's the first thing. This idea that Paul is saying, it's by prayer and intercession I'm praying for you that you might get this knowledge. But there's more to it. There's more to it. Because Paul uses these phrases, he's actually praying that they might receive the spirit of wisdom and revelation, the spirit of wisdom and revelation, And secondly, that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. I like this phrase. I love this phrase. That the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. What does this mean? Well, a heart is an organ, yes. But similarly to our understanding today, they would have understood heart in the sort of the the, the literary idea that it's our mental and moral centre. It's not just this organ, but it's, it's kind of the who we are in our in our thoughts and in our heart, the depths. And Paul's praying that that would be enlightened. And how? Through our eyes. And the eye is an organ, of course, where lots of information comes in through our eyes. And it comes in better when there's more light. There's a, a, a condition that you might have heard about called cataracts. And cataracts are actually quite common and they get more likely and more common as we get older. 
um, looking at some of the research, apparently cataract surgery is the most common surgery in the United States. Three million people a year go through surgery and we live in a blessed time where they can change it. Now, what does a cataract mean? If you look up at this diagram, on the, right, on the left hand side you can see normal, on the right there's a clouded lens. There's a part of our eye that can start to cloud over. So instead of seeing clearly, everything looks blurry until potentially, ultimately, we can go blind. There is no more light that comes in. It blocks the light from coming in. Now, we live in an era where surgeons have figured out that they can actually relatively easily, and this is why 3 million people in the US each year have this surgery, take the lens out and replace it with an artificial one. And people's eyes are enlightened. They have this surgery so that people's eyes can be enlightened. And, and this is kind of an analogy, I think, for what Paul is praying for our hearts. That that cloudy lens... And remember here, he's, he's talking to believers. He's talking to us. He's not saying this is about figuring out who Jesus is and suddenly understanding, ah, now I know who Jesus is. He's talking about more than that. He's talking about learning to know God better and all of this knowledge. And he's saying, I'm praying that that cloudy lens would become clear so that the eyes of your heart can be enlightened. And he's praying it through the Spirit. He's praying that we would have the Holy Spirit move in us and reveal to us wisdom. So why don't we do that together this morning? I'm actually going to invite us this morning to do what Paul says together. It's going to be a little bit different. Um, the musicians are going to play a song. We're going to stand up in a minute. We're going to play a little song. And then I'm actually going to invite us as a family, as a church family, to pray with each other. We're going to have the prayer team out the front. So if you, if you would like to, come forward for prayer. But actually, I'm going to encourage something slightly different. I'm going to encourage you, to, once you're up out of your seats, to come forward or to the sides and find somebody, anybody in our church family and pray with them. And we're going to have up on the screen what Paul has been praying. And that's what I'm going to encourage us. I'm going to come down as well and, and pray with somebody. We're going to be praying, Father, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation? Would you open the eyes of our hearts so that we might know you better? Now, if you're uncomfortable... We're gonna, it's going to be absolutely fine if you sit in your seat as well or you might want to head out the back. But as a family, this is something that's going to be fantastic to do together. So let's stand just for a moment. We're going to sing and then I'll come back and we'll, we'll move into a time of prayer together. Thanks, Jeff.